before I was married and I was uh, young and crazy, I was down in uh, Columbia going to a uh, to work in a school for missionary kids. And I found myself trying to get a visa once I already got down there. And uh, I am in this like overstuffed taxi cab. And I mean overstuffed. There's like three people too many in the taxi cab. And, uh, and there were these military stop points all, the, all along the way. And, uh, and it soon became evident to me that this, this taxi driver had some contraband in his trunk. And the thought occurred that if he gets stopped, I'm the only gringo in this car and I'm going to jail because they'll all say, he put it in there. And I remember the feeling and, and I spoke just enough Spanish to be dangerous, right? And I remember that feeling of being like thousands of miles away from home and going, ah, because, you know, in the exuberance of your youth, you don't think about those things till, well, some guys never do, but I did. And I, and I was suddenly longing for home because it was like, you know, these people can put me in jail and no one would hear from me ever again. These people like hold my life in it. Wow. What have I done? What have I done? And there was a severe feeling of homesickness for sure. And that's, uh, I think, brother, you really put into song. And that is, especially in these times, in all the angst, don't we all just just really homesick? Let's just go. Okay. Uh, do you guys have my... It's up there? There it is. This morning, we're going to... That's not the first slide. Unity of the Godhead as seen in the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to, from time to time, some of us elders have been taking turns teaching on the doctrines, the major doctrines of Scripture. And some are easy to grasp. Some are take a little more thought. And this is one of those. And uh, you might ask, well, why do we study doctrine? Well, one of the things is, is that when you stand behind this thing, or if you come down here and stand, or you put on this microphone, or you pick up the Word of God and you go to teach in this church, it's, it's a very grave responsibility. Because it's not just getting up here to speak or to teach. It is for Christ and his body that we do this because it's for the health and welfare of the body of Christ. And that's why scripture says, you know, vet your elders. They need to be vetted. You need to make sure that no false doctrine comes from them. Because the aspect of shepherding, which Pastor Tom has done at this church for 30 how many years? Three. Faithfully and diligently Pastor Tom has shepherded this flock. Now, I can teach, and I love teaching, but I am not a shepherd. I am not a pastor. It takes a very special individual to be a shepherd that shepherds the flock. So it's our responsibility as elders and the leadership of this church to make sure that we maintain our spiritual health. So that's why we, we go to the trouble to and and strain that sometimes keeping you awake in here to discuss some of these some of these things but we shepherd the flock 
We don't police the flock. Okay, there is a difference. We shepherd, I mean, we police against false doctrine. Typically, cults police the flock, right? You have to do this. You have to dress this way. You have to say this. You have to tie this. You better not this. If I hear about this, they police the flock. They don't shepherd the flock. But our job is to police our doctrine and arrest and haul off to jail any false doctrines that creep in. So that's why we do it. Okay, so let's try this morning, as we talk about the Trinity, to, to get our minds wrapped around it. Now, it's not rocket science, okay? It's not rocket science. I think somebody just took a whole bunch of algebraic equations and put them on that chalkboard. But, but it's kind of simple, because all we can know about the Trinity, as we call it, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, he has shown us and told us in his word. It's revealed to us in his word. So, it, and, he, and he didn't reveal it to us as a formula or some secret or anything like that. It's there. It's to be understood. And coming to this subject, we have to understand that there are many things beyond our understanding, right? Or at least beyond our full understanding and beyond our full comprehension. What is, let's just think about light. What's light? Well, it's, it's a particle and it's a wave. Wait, what? It can't be, you know, according to the laws of physics, it's not supposed to be both, but it is. I don't know how many taxpayer dollars have been spent on trying to figure out why is that, who knows. But it's not completely, fully comprehended and understood. An infinite universe. Can you understand or get your mind wrapped around an infinite universe? No, you can't because that's something infinite and we have finite minds. So, okay. What about a supreme being? How much time have you spent thinking about the fact that God is the supreme being? That's not some Marvel comic book title or anything. It's real and it's legit. He is a being who gave life to us as beings, human beings, but he is supreme. There is none greater than, none higher than, none. He is, a, he is the supreme being, not a supreme being. He is the supreme being. That's actually hard to get your, if you actually don't just dismiss that and go, oh yeah, I know, I know what that is. If you actually think about that, that is hard to get your mind wrapped around. Because there is no one, because we're so oriented to, <clears throat> there's always something bigger. There's always something better. There's a, there's a bigger predator. There's, you know, the food chain. There's, all, there's always something. It's kind of how we think. But that's how it is with God. And actually, it's a fascinating and fun thing to try to just think about that. You should try that sometime. You may fall asleep while you're doing it, but that's okay. The doctrine of the Trinity, I just want to make this clear, it's not mystical. It's not some ethereal mystical thing, though for some it may hold a certain mystique. Okay? And there's a difference between mystical and mystique. When I was younger and a younger Christian, I didn't think a whole lot about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit 
and that they were one, but not the same. And this, I, I didn't think about that. I just knew that when I read the Bible, there was the Father and, and there was the Son and the Spirit. And if anybody started talking about the Trinity and that there's one God, and I, I would just kind of go, wow, that's just, yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm studying other things. I'm studying the life of Christ or I'm studying this in Proverbs or something. And so somewhere out here, this concept was, and, and so it held a certain mystique to me because I just hadn't dived into it. So for some, they fully are, are fully aware of it, fully agree with it, but it kind of has this mystique where they, yeah, it's, it's there. It's there. Mystique means a fascinating aura of mystery, awe, and power surrounding someone or something, and that's, I think that's, a, for some Christians, that's a good definition of their concept or where they're at with the Trinity, is that it's, there's this aura of mystery. Because let's face it, there are certain mysteries about God. There are answers that we can, and there's questions we can ask that there are not answers in Scripture. You, you can do that. You can come up with those. But this, this, there's a certain mystery to it because it's like, okay, I get it. I have this mind of gray matter that can understand something. Yeah, okay, I understand that. And so we apply our minds to try to understand it. It's not complicated. It does make logical sense, and it is reasonable when you don't have an agenda and you don't cherry-pick verses, okay? And that's a key point. Almost everybody who has some other idea about the Trinity or says that the Trinity is a made-up thing, in the defense of their position, they will always, always cherry-pick verses and they will take them out of context, and they will not take the Scripture organically, as in from Genesis to Revelation. And the work, and the revelation of the work of those three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in time and history. And there are no secrets hidden in Scripture for hundreds or thousands of years that someone has is, is just suddenly had a revelation and they wrote a book and now you can understand it. Does that sound familiar? Just in trying not to waste my time, but just in poking around the Internet to see what sort of new things are floating around out there. Well, I discovered there aren't any new things. They're just repackaged. That's all. <clears throat> But there, I, I was maybe not surprised, but just went reminded about how frequently that is a tell for a false doctrine. Well, you read this book because revealed in this book, and they're not talking about the Bible. That's a book somebody wrote. Is revealed the secret of, okay, I'm done with you. That's every time that's a tell that they're about to espouse a false doctrine because of some secret thing that mainstream Christianity has kept hidden for thousands of years. It's like klaxon horns and red lights should be going off. There are no secrets hidden in Scripture. So after combing through some of that stuff, and really I said, okay, I got to keep this more simple. Through church history, there have been basically 
and variations of these, but there's basically been four um, false doctrines persistent and reoccurring in church history. Four of these, modalism, <clears throat> tritheism, monarchianism, and Arianism. A bunch of isms. So we're going to look at these four. And modalism holds, those who hold to modalism, and by the way, has variations of these, and yet even in some mainstream still, what would you call them, mainstream denominations, or maybe not mainstream, but major once denominations or whatever, some people still hold to these. Modalism is where there's just one God. But they take, and, and the person that espoused this back in the early church used the Greek word prosopon, which means masks. And in Greek plays, the characters, instead of changing their makeup, they had masks. And so the they play, they put this mask on and they were this character, they put this mask on and they were this character. And so modalism, they came up with that and they said, this is what this is like. This was their analogy. This is what God is like. He manifests himself as God, the creator, God, the father, God, the son, and then he manifests himself as God, the spirit. Okay. So it, because he's that, that heresy talks about manifestation, we, sometimes people get confused when someone happens to say, well, God was manifest in Christ. Oh, be careful. I know what you're saying. I know what you mean. As, as a good Bible-believing, fundamental, dispensationalist, whatever, I know what you're saying, but be careful. Because that is, the, that is the byword for modalism, is a manifestation. God's here, and he manifested himself as the creator and father of all creation. Then he manifested himself as the son, and when he was done with that, then he manifested himself as the helper, the spirit. Yeah. This, this still is around, and I do remember when I worked at ICR that we had someone that was going out speaking for us, and, and someone hadn't told Dr. Henry or hadn't vetted this guy thoroughly or something. Anyway, it was found out that he was a modalist. Was Dr. Henry or Dr. John? Dr. John. It was Dr. John. I think you were in the meeting, Tom. It was like, you, you should not have this person. I know you're talking science, but if you are Bible-believing, you, you should not have this person speaking for you. So it's around, and it's alive. Tritheism, and you find, and you'll find, you'll find that, you'll, you'll find modalism, variations of it in all kinds of false religions. Tritheism, you'll find in false religions. I think three distinct beings being three separate gods, that's kind of, that's what the Mormons believe, kind of, as a mixture of it. But they're three separate distinct beings, three separate gods that may even have different timelines in past history. Frequently they do, frequently with tritheism. Monarchianism is that God is only one person, just one, and they always go to the Shema to say 
Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. They always go to that verse and they yank it right out of there and they say, this is what, and so there's only one God. But the Son and the Spirit are impersonal attributes, not distinct and divine persons. So whenever scripture talks about the Spirit and the Son, well, those are just attributes of God. Those aren't actual people. Those are attributes, which actually, when you get into scripture, that, that's hard. That's hard to follow. And then Arianism, which is very much alive and dominant in a lot of false teaching churches. Arian said that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor consubstantial. And he used this word, I'll destroy this, but it's homeosiosis or something like that, meaning similar substance, similar substance, that Jesus was of similar substance to the Father. Similar, okay? And therefore, he was not co-eternal. He didn't pre-exist, but he had his existence begin somewhere back there. God the Father, God, was pre-existent, co-eternal, but not consensus. So that's Arianism. And the common arguments opposing the Trinity that you'll get whenever you start talking, when someone starts tearing apart the Trinity, the most common arguments are this word is not found in the Bible. You will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. Okay, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. There's a lot of stuff we believe that the word that we use to describe what we believe is not found in the Bible. Do you have a problem with that? I don't. It's a concept. Maybe it's a concept. And we attach a word to it in our English so that we can talk intelligently and communicate. Then they'll say this doctrine didn't show up until 300 years after Christ. And then 300 and actually 350 years or 300 until, and what they're talking about is it didn't show up until the Nicene Creed. And then they'll say it's a doctrine thought up by the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church held this position and um, from moving forward from Constantine onward, you will find this in the Catholic Church. They held on to that. But it wasn't the Catholic Church that established it. Okay, so let's just take a look at this because it's it's the... Arguing between Arius and Athanasius, who were early church fathers or bishops. And, and Arian was holding this position, but Athanasius was adamant that this was wrong and had to be stamped out. And it was, it's interesting because in the Greek words that they used, there is only, do you see that this is, there's an I in the one and not an I in the other. You see that? That was the only difference. One letter in the two words made the difference between similar and the same in the Greek. And Athanasius was ready to die to say they are not similar. They are the same. And Arius was saying, no, no, they're similar. And Arius was a tricky guy. He actually got kicked out with his false doctrine. He got kicked out of the church, but he wasn't done. He said, wait, I think I'm right. 
So his concept of, of this being similar but not the same and, and Jesus not being God, preexistent, he made up little ditties describing that, and he, and he taught them to like the working class and the guys down at the, at the wharf loading ships. And so they would sing these little ditties about that. And it, in the peasantry, in the working class, this false doctrine began to spread. So the church fathers kept, in, you know, and bishops in their churches and stuff started encountering this stuff. And they said, we, we got to put an end to this. So, excuse me, the, they held a council, and that's the Nicene Council from which then we get um, the Nicene Creed. Um, Tertullian, by the way, appears to be the one to first coin the phrase Trinity in his desire to get everybody's mind wrapped around this and to define it and to say, nope, this is what it has to be. He's the guy that actually, they think, gave us this word. And he was actually arguing against Praxius, um, who was actually espousing the concept of monarchianism. But um, Arius is saying that God, so when he says that they're similar, what he was saying was that God was God and preexistent, but then God gave birth to or created Jesus. That's what he was saying. And for the church fathers, most of them, that was, that was heresy. And so out of, the, um, out of that council came the Nicene Creed, at which they said, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And in the Holy Spirit. We all, it's, it's almost it's kind of funny because in the original, it's kind of thrown in at the end. It's just like grammatically, they said, and in the Holy Spirit. Okay. After they were saying what they believe in and making sure that there was this strong connection between the Father and the Son, and that there was no, the Father didn't create the Son, the Father didn't birth the Son, or some funny thing like that. Oh, yeah, and by the way, the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Holy Spirit, that He's in there as well. So nowadays, you can pick your heresy. It's heresy de jour, the the heresy for the day. I almost put on here, uh, today's heresy du jour, which I would have been doing that to see if you were, paying, if you were awake or asleep, because du jour means for today. <laughs> I would have been saying the heresy today is for today. But anyway, they, when I looked around the internet, I didn't really realize what an what a extreme impact that Herbert W. Armstrong had on false teaching and how many churches 
birthed out of that heresy. The church of God, the worldwide church of God, as it was come to be known under Armstrong, had a radio program. That should have been the first clue. Had a radio program, send money, all that stuff. And his doctrine was rife with false teaching. I mean, his theology was rife with with falsehoods. And eventually it, it, it spawned this. He, he, he got in trouble with the state and all this stuff. And eventually he died and someone else took over. But it created this heresy machine because there were so many splinters and factions that split off to, from it that there are, so that was the worldwide church of God. There are church of gods with every possible prefix that you can think of. The Philadelphia church of God the Reformed Church of God, the, what's this one? The missions, foreign mission, whatever. We'll get into that. But basically, these flawed thinkers give us all these, all these false doctrines. And this one that I found, this is a free book online, God's Plan for All. Uh, let's see, what was it? The Four Spiritual Laws, God's Plan for My Life or something like that. Is what we used to say. Well, this is God's plan for all. You want to read this book. But when you get to chapter 26, they're going to tell you how and why the Trinity is false and unbiblical. So hmm, that's interesting. Let me see. Who, who are these people? Oh, you may not be able to read that. Wow, the highlighting, really. This is what they said. This is David and Zoe and their husband and wife. And both of us are university graduates with engineering and science degrees. However, we have not attended any Bible college. That's supposed to be a plus. They've been to a secular college. They have degrees in their fields. But oh, the great thing is they haven't been to a Bible college. The inference is they haven't been indoctrinated. We see this as a distinct advantage because we have not been influenced to accept any unbiblical teachings such as Calvinism, Arminianism, the Trinity, hell, annihilation, the immortality of the soul, and the prosperity gospel. These are all man-invented, unbiblical theologies that contradict the pure word of God. And of course, they're right. This book is rife with their, which, is, which was kind of funny to me because basically they took Herbert W. Armstrong's writing and just rewrote them into this book. That's really all they did. They're going to fool some, I'm sure, but they certainly didn't fool me. The universal reconciliation, they cherry pick these and they twist these scriptures to say that when the scripture says that Christ died for all and he reconciled the world to himself, what that means is no one's going to hell. No one. Past, present, future. No one's going to hell. There's no such thing as hell. It's not, it's, it's just those crazy Crazy people that talk about hell, they, they just misuse the scripture. It's not in there. So everyone is eventually going to be reconciled. And it's also kind of, they don't quite go that far. Um, Armstrong and the Church of God said that the soul was not immortal. There wasn't a big deal. Yeah, some people are going to be punished, but they're just going to not exist. They're not going to like be tormented in a hell or anything there's the soul is not immortal god chooses in judgment and they try to divide up the judgments and everything it gets very convoluted and 
And, and God's just going to annihilate those souls. So what's the big deal? Right? That sounds vaguely something like Richard Dawkins, doesn't it? Oh, I don't care. I'm just going to die and I'm going to become fertilizer for that tree out there. Just spread my ashes out there or something. Well, there's, you have an immortal soul. But not according to these people, because the way that they twist the scriptures. And I found that the Trinity is a doctrine that's much less believed than we may realize. Because it was interesting that the search engine in Google, when I wanted to find out about false doctrine regarding the Trinity or heresy regarding the Trinity, the search engine assumed that I was looking for, that I actually, the heresy I was speaking about was the Trinity. And so the bulk of the results from that search was all the things that are wrong and pages that people had posted trying to refute the Trinity. It was pretty interesting. That's not what I was trying to do, but it was very enlightening to me because there's just website after website, after podcast, after podcast, after with all of these false teachings, yeah, specifically for the Trinity, because that's what I was looking for. But once you get into it, you find that they're not just messed up on the Trinity. They're messed up on a whole bunch of other stuff. And so that's what I found. We have to remember that Scripture is God's communication to us and that the Scripture is not mystical. There aren't any ancient secrets, like I said, hidden in it. You don't need a special spiritual sense to understand it. There, there used to be some, and uh, Armstrong used to kind of be like, I'm the dude who understands it. You don't listen to me. Most of your crazy men that lead these all these people astray will always say that. Will always say that. And anybody underneath them that comes to confront them and say, you know, I've been thinking, I don't think this is right. They're dealt with. We can read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we can clearly see God's dealing with mankind from beginning to end and the role that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have had, actively had, in history, in world history, and in church history. If we go to Genesis, in the beginning, we start there. By the way, some of you, um, some of you read through the Bible every year, and, oops, excuse me, sorry, um, and you have a schedule to read through the Bible, but it doesn't take you from Genesis to Revelation, just book after book, does it? I know some of the reading schedules breaks it up, so that you don't fall asleep reading the genealogies or something. Um, but I would encourage you, whether you read from organically from Genesis to Revelation, or you read it on a schedule, and you, if you're doing that every year, some of you may already do this, but if you're not, you should do this. Pick a subject, pick a word, pick something that as you read through the scripture, you are going to be looking for. Get a little notebook, a little moleskin or something, and start. This is this year, it's this subject. This year, it's this word. And as you read through, look for that. It's a really easy way to 
really get to understand and know the scripture, not just to read through it, just to to read through it for the year, but to actually read it to understand it because you're going to be looking for something. You're not just reading it to read it. You're looking for something when you read. So I highly encourage you to do that. So in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and there was darkness over the surface and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And a lot of people want to say, well, it was just utter chaos. And this is, this is after Satan fell and uh, there's just all kinds of false doctrine involved here. But what this verse is communicating to us is that the spirit of God is involved in what is going on in the creation on earth. The simple fact that scripture tells us here that it doesn't have any form yet, but all the raw materials are there basically is what it's saying. But the spirit was doing his work, whatever that was, in his role in creation. Okay? So it's not, it's not like this was this antediluvian or some pre-civilization before Adam and Eve. Remember, it's the declaration and the broader picture of creation. And then the next chapter is all of the details. We have to remember that. So the spirit is there. It's involved. And in that verse, we're told that God created and that the Spirit, it does not say God the Spirit created, it says God created, and then that the earth was formless and void, and that the Spirit of God, okay? So we have that right out of the gate. Then later, after the fall, we have this interesting scripture in Genesis 6-3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, those people, and as we look at these scriptures, those people who want to say that, um, that don't believe in the Trinity, and they say, well, there's the Father, and then somehow he either created or gave birth to the Son, and that's it. Well, what about the Spirit? Well, that's just an attribute of God. That's the Spirit as a reference to his power. Okay, uh, the Spirit is power. The Son is power. The Father is power. Okay, whatever. But they want to say this, that the Spirit isn't actually a person. It's a power. It's an attribute of God. Well, you kind of, if you really want to dig into this verse here, it's saying, my Spirit shall not strive with men as in a person striving with another person, not an attribute, not a force or a power, but an actual person striving with another person. So whatever that means, that whatever the Spirit's work, there's a mystery for us. Whatever the Spirit's work was pre-flood is a very curious thing to me. But God is telling us here that he said, I'm, my spirit's not going to strive with man. This is, a, this is a mess. Man has become so wicked. So the work of the spirit still, because the, the spirit here, this, the verse here is intimating that the spirit is striving with man. He's doing his job. And whether we fully understand that or not, the thing to be understood is that the spirit is there doing his job. Then if we move to the, to the wilderness, 
We see in Exodus 31, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. That's not just that, it's not saying that God filled him with his power. It's saying that God gave his spirit to Bezalel in order to do the work God wanted done on the tabernacle that gave him a special ability, probably, to unlock abilities in his mind. Okay, probably. I mean, I'm just guessing. But to give him, to anoint him, so to speak, with these abilities for craftsmanship is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the power, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Then in Numbers 11, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. And and prior to this in the chapter, God had told Moses, okay, look, this is, is, you get a couple of million people here. This is a lot of... I want you to select 70 elders and I want you to bring them to the tent of meeting. I want you to bring those 70 men. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out here. And when they were stationed around the tent, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him, Moses, and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not prophesy again. So the power rested on them. And the initial resting of the power on them caused them to prophesy. But the scriptures tell us, but they didn't keep prophesying. But they kept doing their job. And this is almost foretelling a a pre-picture of God giving his spirit to us to do the work we need to do. And also what happened in this. So this is not just the power of God. This is the work of a person a personality within the Godhead. And the interesting thing is that there was two guys of the 70 that for whatever reason stayed back in camp and did not make it, whether they were late or whatever. But it didn't matter that their locale was over here and that the other 68 were here. The spirit of God was still imparted to them. And they started prophesying over in the camp. And Joshua heard it and said, Moses, you better stop these guys. To which Moses says, interestingly, are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? And Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon him. Why do you think Moses said that? He wished they'd all be spirit-filled because they're such problems, right? They're such complainers. It's an interesting tell also about Moses because Moses was not holding. I mean, it says a lot about Moses that he wasn't, it wasn't like, Oh yeah, I better go stop him. Cause I'm the only one and they're only supposed to, but Moses is like, Oh, Joshua, you gotta understand, man. I wish all of the people had the spirit not resting on them. So that's the work of the Holy spirit, a foretelling there, a neat little peek into what's going to happen at Pentecost and stuff. And, and it's right there, but it's Moses is making it clear. This, this spirit, it's not just power. 
It is the person, the work of this person of the Godhead, okay? Then when, if you get into, to further back this up, and you get into Nehemiah, and when um, the people were called together, they brought out the law and realized that they'd been marrying foreign wives and everything, and then they have a big meeting, and everybody is um, fasting and praying and, and weeping. Then um, some of the Levites got up, and they oratorily, they, they kind of went through the history of Israel. And in Nehemiah 9.20, and, and also verse 30, they say, you gave your good spirit, they're talking about the Lord, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Does a power do instructing? No, a person doesn't. A teacher does instructing. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. And then he goes on to say, however, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the, of the lands. Again, the work of one of the Godhead, the person, the spirit, his work. And then in Isaiah, Isaiah says this, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who has or or as his counselor has informed him. In other words, who, well, wait a minute, who, who's directing, who's speaking to the spirit of the Lord? Well, no, nobody speaks to him. He's part of the Godhead. It's the same. And then in Isaiah 42, one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. My servant being a reference to who? Christ. So we so as you see, if you read organically Genesis to Revelation, you see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are woven into the scripture. It's, there's not funny little just blips here and there. They're woven into scripture. And if we only had the book of John for and the gospel according to John, out of the New Testament, we could easily, easily understand the Trinity. And you know you're familiar with the opening of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, not a God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. Okay, and some people, so, so that... This is going to destroy the concept of that there that that there's a that that Jesus isn't God and that he was somehow created by and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth the word was not a power or an or some force at work, because some people believe that too. They believe that, oh, well, that, that the word, that's the same as the spirit. It's just, it's a, a force that God uses. Well, no, because John is delineating here very clearly that the word, and when, when you read this together, you understand that the word is Christ. And then, and then further in the chapter, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Who? God, the Father. 
the Son has explained God the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That phrase, only begotten Son, is another key that people like to use against the Trinity. Or, well, in the Church of God, it's kind of like Arianism. Christ was begotten by the Father. And so he's begotten, and, the, and where they get that from is from these verses in John. Begotten, the only begotten, begotten. He was begotten, he was born. Begotten means the only one of its kind or class. It's unique in kind. It does not mean that, it does not mean that Christ was, was Christ physically born? Sure. When he came as human, and when he came as a man, yes, he was born. But he preexisted and he was not born. And the reference to him being the only begotten of the Father means that he is the only son. The only one of his kind. And you know what? Then you know what? What's interesting about that is because he really is begotten. He really is unique, and he really is the only one of his kind, because he's the only God man. So it's not like John is just grabbing this out of the air and just think, "Oh, I had a thought." Yeah, he's the only begotten of the Father. John understood. That Jesus was unique in that he was not only God the Son, but he was also God the man. So that made him begotten. But this gets so mad. This is just, well, you don't need to go to seminary to know that begotten means he's born. No. Obviously, you should have gone to seminary. You don't get it. And the relationship between the Father and the Son, as seen in John throughout the Gospel of John, is a working relationship between a Father and a Son. And what we see is, and what gets mistaken by some false teaching, is that there's a, and Herbert Armstrong was big on this, that there's this government Herbert Armstrong with the government in the church and the government, and we're going to take over the world and a government government. And that he would teach that the son was subservient to the father, not because Jesus had humbled himself and taken on the form of man, but because that this was the high hierarchical, this was the God pecking order almost is what Armstrong would lead you to believe that because he has to keep Jesus not equal as God, but as just this man that became man, but he was created by God himself. But scripture clearly tells us that out of obedience to his father, not because of some hierarchical hierarchy or hierarchical pecking order, but because the son, one of the Godhead, freely, willingly said, I will. I will do that because the father asked him. And Jesus did that in the power of what? The spirit. 
they're all working on this for us together. The power that's given to him in verse in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. And then the 26th verse, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. He's, he's making it clear that he is that father, the son, it's the same. He's here in human form. They are of the same essence, not similar, same. Jesus asking the father, what was Jesus here in John 14, 16, asking the father for? The spirit, that the father would send the spirit. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, I mean, how much does how much does Jesus have to make it clear that they're all in this together? That he needs to leave because as as the God man now, he needs to leave. He needs to be glorified and go back to sit at the right hand of the Father. And that it, so that the helper, the Holy Spirit, can be here to help us. I mean, seriously, how how much? How many chapters do you have to write? How many verses do you have to write before you get this? In John 16, 7, Jesus said, but I'm telling you, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Wait, he just said the father would send. Because I, me, we, it's the same. One God that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Distinct, same essence, but distinct. Simply stated, you're going to say, that's not simply stated, Kim. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. They are God. really not it, it looks complicated it's not that's not a formula that's not that's not you know e equals mc squared that's just stating the father is neither of these two neither the son or the spirit the son is neither the father or the spirit the spirit's neither the son or the father but they are god but they are three so I'm telling you, you, you could, we, we're just barely made it here, but th this, this subject is deep and you can go, you can really go deep with this subject. We really just hit the major points and pointed out some of the fallacies, but you will find if you're listening carefully and if you do understand the Trinity, you will hear someone when they're starting to stray off when, they're, when it comes to the Trinity, because you'll hear some of those tells, those key words that are, will like turn your radar on and go, whoa, either I need to help this person or I need to stay away from them. For now, we have finite minds, right? And these minds are also corrupted. They're corrupted by the fall. And daily, actually, our minds are corrupting because we're losing brain cells. Let's face it. 
some more than others. We are not capable of understanding perfectly. I know humans don't like to admit that, but it's true. We are not capable of understanding perfectly. And we are not able to comprehend completely. Okay? Those are two statements. Under perfect understanding and complete comprehension is not something that we can possess about very complicated things. Okay? And that's okay. So, even when we get our mind wrapped around the Trinity, it's okay. If it's like, well, I wonder if... No, it's okay. But one day, one day, this is what's going to happen. That we see in Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, all full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, and who is to come. Now, quite frankly, when, you, when I think about this verse, it's not just that the writer, I mean, not just that these guys decide that, well, there's three people in the Trinity, and so we're going to put three holies in there. I don't think that's it. I was thinking about this. I think that those four living creatures are going, holy, 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 and they're making reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why there's three holies there. If you can remember, you can hold me to that when we get there. And we'll see whether or not that's actually how it is that we're saying holy, holy, holy. In my imagination, it's like, oh, wait, why would you? Because it's kind of like, well, why would you say three? Yeah, I know there's three. Oh. What if the scene is, is that it's the three are there and he's saying, holy, holy, holy. Well, the point is, our understanding and comprehension will be perfect and complete on that day because our understanding and comprehension will be from experience. We will experience it. Then we'll fully understand. If there's any little questions in our mind, They'll be completely gone, and we'll get it. When we stand in the presence of our Father God, the Lord Christ God, and the Spirit God, we'll understand. We'll get it. Oh, I understand. That ought to make us homesick for that day. When experientially, we actually experience the truth, the full fact of the Trinity. And we'll actually see the work that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done from time immortal to time. We'll understand. It's great, isn't it? I think it's exciting. I want to go home. How did I get here? What am I doing here? I'm a long way from home, right? Aren't we all? A long way from home. We should be yearning for home. Let's pray.